0: Are you located in your dreams? That's so what I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and I, I know people say, well, dreams don't have space. Well, there's some kind of phenomenal space. I like, I start losing my grip. Like, what do you mean by space? If dreams yeah. don't have space, like, what I don't even know what you mean by space. If, if what you mean by space is something that I have no conscious awareness of. Okay, fine. But what I have a conscious awareness of in my dreams, and I've had too many dreams where I like knew I was dreaming and I was like, Hey, what is that? There's extension there. There's yeah. things over here and it's moving, right? Right, And it's like, well, where am I? Am I located in my dream? Well, maybe my avatar is if I even have one. Sometimes I have dreams and it's like, I'm just acquainted with what's there. I have an avatar. You you got
1: some crazy dreams. I want to plug into your dreams. This is cool. (laughs) Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. I'm your host, Parker. Said the case. I don't know if I've said that yet, but um, man, I'm really excited for this episode. It's going to be really hard for me to do my introduction, but uh, I have with me Dr. Josh Rasmussen for the second time, uh, and we're going to be talking about his new book or his forthcoming book. Man, I got the early access to it. I I feel very special today. It's called "Who Are You Really: A Philosopher's Inquiry into the Nature and Origin of Persons." And I've been waiting for this for a while, thinking about it, chewing on it. I know I knew Josh has been working on this so. I'm just all sorts of jazzed. Uh, if you guys like this episode um, and you want to hear more from from Josh, you can just YouTube him. He's he's all over the place. You can also check out our previous episode. It is episode 107 on the metaphys- metaphysics of truth, going over his dissertation-turned-book, uh, Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth. It's another really, really good one. It blows my mind like seven times, eight times in there. But uh, before we jump in, I do have to do my introduction. So I want to thank everyone on Patreon for making this podcast happen. I've said it a bunch, but I want to make this a full-time gig. I would love to like fly out to Josh and like bring him a bunch of pensies gear and stuff like that. But I need more uh, patrons to make that happen. So thank you to everyone who is already supporting me on Patreon. And uh, man, if you like this podcast, if it's your top 10, top 5, please consider becoming my Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. You can also find a super thanks button down here. If you want to go above and beyond patreon or just give me a one-time gift buy me a cup of coffee that would be huge all that is super super helpful you can also find the merch store we have tons of gear like this new shirt that i'm wearing here's the brain stash logo parker's pensies uh, all sorts of colors all sorts of designs from my guy chaston han who's been uh just awesome huge godsend this guys awesome check out his stuff you can also go to our discord channel where we're having conversations all the time. Uh, about the episode so check out the discord channel check out the parker's pencey's poncier's facebook group subscribe leave a comment these things are going to be like this intro is going to be 15 20 minutes if i don't cut it so uh thank you for everyone supporting the podcast if you like it please like it please subscribe and uh share a comment because josh is on youtube so be cool but uh share some thoughts because this book is forthcoming maybe you can help him think through these ideas even more so, without further ado, let's bring him in. Josh, man, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast.
0: Thank you. This is awesome. Yeah, I love what you've been doing on your show. I've been seeing some of your interviews, including interviews on the topic of this book um, with high level philosophers. And I told you before the show, I added you to the acknowledgments of the book because some of those interviews actually helped me to think through okay, I want to add some lines here to the book. So, yeah, I'm just grateful awesome. to be with you here. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. I, I will say I did check that right away because I heard you say, or you you told me that and I was like, dude, he actually did it. That's amazing. I'm actually You're it. in. So cool. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can retire now. Um, Josh, man, you, you, you are a metaphysician and man, you, you like explore what metaphysicians should explore and you take different topics, you go into truth and all different types of things, but how did you get into studying persons and consciousness? Mm-hmm. Usually it seems like people get, I'm not trying to blast anyone, but people go so deep in one area that yeah. they don't go more broadly. And you're like a metaphysician metaphysic. You you talk about all the metaphysics. So why consciousness and persons? How did you get well, there? Well,
0: so yeah, that word metaphysics, it, it's sort of variable in meaning. I, I think sort of philosophers, we think of this as trying to get at the nature of things. Mm-hmm. Um, in some contexts, it maybe doesn't quite have that meaning. It might have more associations with with, uh, thinking about things where you can't really get to truth. There's more speculation. But one of my interests is in trying to understand things as deeply as possible. And so the nature of persons, you know, it's interesting. I I talked about this at the beginning of the book in my preface about how persons are a window into reality. I mean, Mm. you sort of look within and you find yourself thinking and feeling and wondering about how we got here. And then you can start wondering about the wondering. What is a wondering, Parker? You know, what is that, right? And it's like, well, whatever it is, it seems to be some part of reality. And by thinking about the nature of the things within, we can start to see into the nature of reality. Um, And one of the themes in the book is that we're sort of deeper in than I myself even anticipated. Um, And and many philosophers who come into this field of studying consciousness find this in their journey too. It's this, this isn't something that people are kind of starting with thinking, okay, here's the nature of reality. Um, Here's how we have to think of things. It's more like, Hmm, what is the nature of reality? And they're finding these pathways to seeing, that we're kind of deeper in uh, than we might've expected. So, and we'll probably talk more about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so what I really like about the book is that you break it into these two parts, your nature, and then your origin. And the origin question is so fascinating. Cause it's like the origin question is what kind of world must we be in uh, for us to be who we are? So you, you spend yeah. all this time saying, this is who we are. Like you can't escape it. And we can even use some of those introspective, and and some of the tools of introspection and reason, and even scientific method to say this is what you are now. What must be like undergirding that if you are who you are? And yeah. uh, dude, I love that, it's such a cool method. Is that um, is that principled, or is or, or could you have likewise done the other way? Could you uh-huh. start with,
0: yeah, yeah, like start with um, uh, sort of theories of origin, yeah. and then this is what you must be in order for those theories right. of origin to be true. Well, it's interesting because. I think, in fact, this is exactly how sometimes philosophers come to views about the nature of yeah. persons. And I was talking with a philosopher at a conference a few years back, and he had a view about, well, he, he had the view that he himself didn't really exist. <laughs> so he told me he himself didn't really exist. And then his argument for that, uh, this is a great guy, great philosopher, true, um, true. fun conversation, and very interesting. Um, but he he argued from origin. So his argument was, well, in the beginning are the particles. And he didn't think, he didn't really see a way that particles could organize into a first person conscious being. Yeah. And he he sort of took the line that if he existed, really existed, that he would be a kind of first person conscious reality. And we'll talk more about what that might mean. Um, so yeah, so he worked from a theory of origin to a theory of the nature of who he would be. Well, that he doesn't exist. But if he does exist, then this is what the, what kind of reality it'd have to be, it'd have to be the kind of reality that could be explained in terms of third person physics. Right. Right. So I, t- I go the other way. I start with, let, let's make some observations about consciousness. Let's go careful, carefully. Um, let's not assume any sort of large scale theories. And let's see if we can kind of find ourselves getting some insight into the the nature of our origin. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And well, so man, I asked, cause I, I like that one better. And I've, I've talked with so many of my, my friends who are dualists. And they go in deep on on introspect and introspection and stuff. And they say, look, I know that I'm in pain or not more surely than I know that like this chair exists over here. And and so they convince me on that. And I know a lot of people will poo-poo that. But I, I just think like that is the way to start because I can't – it's really, really hard for me to doubt my existence. I'm not, I don't think that I can. But uh, maybe I can ask you really quick, Josh. Do you, you think you can doubt that you exist? I think you can doubt
0: anything and i just want to say right away i think there are there's value in both approaches Um, uh there's trade-offs i think but i i also sort of share kind of the spirit of what you're saying which is that i think it's possible to have a clarity about your own existence that's even greater than the clarity of things you know large-scale theories of the world um it's difficult you know one of the things i i do want to say kind of early in this conversation is that what i see Rachel and I, we were having lunch together earlier today. We were talking about this kind of in preparation for this conversation. And one of the things that sort of came out in our conversation together was just that this is a very complex subject. Yeah. This subject brings the brightest minds from all areas of inquiry, from cognitive science, from neuroscience, mm-hmm. from the philosophy of mind, from near-death experience studies, from you know yeah. every single area that you can imagine people are thinking about this. And I feel like there's been a lot of progress, but -hmm. a lot of this progress I feel like has kind of been covered over by the storms of controversy where people try to kind of represent one side versus another side. But what I'm seeing is that there's not just one side or another side, there's many different perspectives on a kind of emerging set of data that's coming through from very recent science that I've been reading, as well as what I would say is developments and analysis Mm-hmm. You know, this is my area of philosophy. People sometimes think of philosophy as a kind of spinning the webs of speculation. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the concern very much. Yeah. Um, I think we're liable to that. But, but one thing that I try to do is to think carefully about deductions. So if this is true, you know, or if, if these uh, observations are actual observations, what can we deduce from that? Yeah. And there have been theorems in consciousness studies um, that have been published that, um, some of this is in the information, uh, theory of consciousness. Some of this is in my yeah. own work that I talk about in my book and other theorems. And I think that, of course, those theorems always proceed from starting points yeah. and people could question the starting points, but the point is, is that there are these deductions of analysis that are surprising, I think, to a lot of people, Yeah. you know, in fact, I think one of the deductions is a deduction from a certain view of fundamental reality to you don't exist, <laughs> right? <laughs> ness of that deduction. Not a lot of people see that, yeah. uh, how you can go from there to there, um, you know, which assumptions lead to which outcomes. And so I think there's been progress on, on kind of two large fronts. One is the kind of empirical scientific um, studies, giving us more and more observations, and then a kind of a, uh, analysis of those studies. I think there's been progress on both fronts. And because these are big questions, people come to different views on this. But well, I, think, I think if we can really kind of see everybody as part of a team, we'll have the greatest chance to see the most together. Yeah. Um, so that's one of my goals in the book is to try to draw out the most from the widest range of data.
1: Yeah, man, I, I love that. And I think it is... Um... I'm I'm so tempted to want to get into my little my little corner and it's us versus them, but sometimes we really 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 need them and I love that you want to do that you you want to actively say no we need all the information let's get all these people working together and you know some of these conclusions are going to hurt uh, your you know your theories the theories that you came with it might sting a little bit if you came with this theory and that's okay it's it's fair game for everyone everyone yeah, probably gonna well, get my, my view
0: bit. has been in, uh, infl- and and uh, and has been updated quite a bit over the years and even. Mm-hmm. reading this book it's been updated and one of the things i was adding today in my book was a footnote about this view called illusionism yeah which adds uh to the elimination of certain quality of consciousness or what it's like to be you or phenomenal consciousness and adds to that um sort of a theory about um sort of why people are tempted to believe in consciousness if there isn't consciousness and the idea is that it's an illusion and one of the things that i did in my footnote was i instead of arguing against illusionism, I saw the value in illusionism and I saw how it actually fits with my bigger project. Yeah, And it took a little bit of work to see that. Um, but, but once I saw that, I got very excited about that. I was like, oh, okay, this is great. Um, the illusionists are helping us to think more carefully about sort of what it means to be aware of something, even to be aware of our own consciousness. Like, And how could that be an illusion? And thinking carefully about that really helped me personally to update my own thinking about mm. perception and how that can integrate with a larger view. Yeah. So I think for me, it's like if I actually decide to look for the value in all the different pieces, that's when I start to see more value. Mm. And um, and so yes, I do mark a specific path through the book and I do reach a particular view. Um, I think some views are true and some views are not true, right? Yeah, I do think yeah. that's true. Um, but I, I feel like I feel like I've been learning a lot, and so I think that there's many truths to see in yeah. this way. Yeah,
1: yeah, man. So Keith, uh, Keith Frank is going to be uh, happy about that one, or maybe not happy because you can subsume his view under under yours. I, I
0: referenced to him on Twitter. I was like, you know, check this <laughs> footnote. You know, let me know if I'm missing something here. I, I want my readers to feel like even if I disagree with them, their views are well represented. They're going to feel right. good. Like, okay, that's my view. You know, yeah.
1: Yeah. One one thing, so I, I did notice all the people you're interacting with. I thought that was awesome. But I, I also noticed, I forgot what they're called, but um, when you take a quote and you start the chapter with it, uh, for yeah. some kind of script, something. And uh, I pulled one from T.H. Huxley um, about um, questioning whether conscious beings exist. And I I took it not to be that like any conscious beings exist, but just like the wonder of being a conscious being, thinking about how it is that I'm conscious. And so he says, uh, how is it that anything so remarkable as a state of consciousness comes about as a result of irritating nervous tissue is is just as unaccountable as the appearance of gin when Aladdin rubbed his lamp. Mm -hmm. And It was like I I, I was reading on the on the elliptical today. I was like, that is amazing. Like, how is it that I have consciousness? It's just crazy. It's like Aladdin rubbing the lap and the, the genie flies out of there. Um, and it was so cool. So you, you formalize this and you say, uh, when I think about what it might take to make a conscious being, I can feel pressure to doubt that any conscious beings could ever exist. Mm-hmm. Here's a simple argument for that conclusion. If conscious beings can exist, then there is some possible explanation of their existence. There is not a possible explanation of the existence of conscious beings. Therefore, conscious beings cannot exist. Um, I think two is is what people are, the second premise there. There's not a possible explanation of the existence of conscious beings. Can you motivate that one for us? Because once I saw your reasoning, it freaked me out. It was really good.
0: Well, in a way, the whole first part of the book is a slow motivation for the deep problems of consciousness from yeah. many sides. You know, because it, it's not just even that there are feelings, it's all the things that are contained within our awareness, our own mm-hmm. thoughts, our own uh, sense of imagery. Uh, you know, What is that if you're having a dream, you're having mm-hmm. images of mountains and trees, and it's like, but there's not actual mountains there, but there's something there. Yeah, I mean, it, there, there is a theory that actually in hallucination, like there's nothing there that you're aware of, but that can't be right because I can distinguish one dream from another. And the only way I can distinguish one dream from another is if there's something different between the dreams, that I'm aware of.
1: Yeah, it'd be like there's differences between nothing. It's like nothing doesn't distinguish itself from nothing. Right. So it's got to yeah. be something.
0: So the question then is, well, what is that? What is the sort of dream imagery? What is that? You know, And and you can analyze it in terms of, let's say, particles or something like this. Um, but there are difficulties there because it seems like I have this kind of introspective access yeah. to the imagery. But I don't have that same introspective access to particles in my brain. And now this is where analysis comes in because you might yeah. think all right so what you know may, maybe it's just the same reality viewed in different ways. But if we just think very carefully about this if x is the same as y I sometimes use the example of a coin if the front side of a coin is the same as the back side of a coin you know the, 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 the there's one coin but if the front side is the same side as the back side then whatever's true of x is true of y. Right. But that means that if I am introspectively aware of X, and X is Y. Then I am in the very same way introspectively aware of Y. Yeah, you know. It, but if instead, if I am aware of the front coin, not aware of the, the back coin, the backside, that's enough to verify a distinction there. So, you know, that's the beginning of an analysis, and, and there's responses and counter responses. But, but as you sort of zoom in on the different elements of consciousness, you start to see a deeper problem of explaining purely in terms of the sort of fundamental particles, how there could be thoughts and feelings. Um, And and like I say, you know, it's not just people trying to argue um, from consciousness for a certain view about fundamental reality. Many philosophers are plagued by this sort of hard problem of how you explain consciousness. Um, I I quote a philosopher who makes the argument that there aren't thoughts anywhere in reality, not in your own mind, nowhere. precisely because he doesn't think that we can analyze thinking and the aboutness of thinking and the structure. And we'll talk about the structure of thinking purely in terms of the vocabulary of physics. Now, not every philosopher takes that route, but there is a kind of argument there. And let me just say, I mean, I do get gripped by this puzzle. It's like, I was talking with my wife, Rachel, about this. And we were both kind of like in this state of like, yeah, why why is there anything? (laughs) And if there's going to be something, why is there consciousness? And we both kind of had this moment of like, you know, like this reality just shouldn't be real. Like there should just be nothing. And if there's going to be something, there's not going to be us, real right. conscious beings. Right. And so I'm I'm very sincere in that opening argument. Like I do feel this sort of pressure. Like how could there be anything that actually has thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, a sense of self, even if the self is an illusion, there's the sense of self. How can that exist? And there's almost like this magic, you know, like rubbing a lamp and then- yeah. Magic pops out. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And, you know, so, some people listening to this, they might think, well, you know, may, maybe what Josh is really trying to do is he's he's try, trying to make an argument here for God. He, he mm-hmm. wants to say that the way to explain consciousness is because, you know, in terms of this sort of supreme mind at the foundation of reality. No, the problem with appealing to God at this level is that that just postpones the mystery or actually maybe exacerbates the mystery, because now we want to know how did God's consciousness exist uh, you know, you say, well, it's just necessary. Well, that's kind of just like saying that this mysterious puzzling thing that we don't understand how it could be there just had to be there. It doesn't right. really answer the mystery. It, it kind of just like labels the mystery. Yeah. Um, and so one of the goals in the book is really to understand at a deep level how there could be anything that has thoughts and feelings. How could that even exist in the yeah. first place?
1: And, <laughs> and I love that. I, I thought about that same point. I went through the same I just read this and I was like, uh, I read the argument and I was like, well, you know, God or either I'll say God or someone, my interlocutor will say God. And then I thought the same thing. And it's like, well, God is conscious. and it's, it's like, well, he's, he's necessarily conscious. That's what it means to be God. It's like, but, but why and how? And like, could there be a possible world where he's not? And then I, I want to bracket off like ontological type stuff, because then. Okay, well, and I said there was a possible world where God's not conscious, and I just messed everything up and Joe Schmidt comes in and and wrecks my my ship. No, I'm just saying it's it's really a crazy thing, and just like you said, I I want the listener to really sit with that. That like, why isn't it just just particles? Just why am I having feelings? I was like sweating on the elliptical, and I was like, I'm cutting weight because I'm doing jujitsu. And I was like, How come I'm feeling hungry? Why is there anything that feels hungry at all? And it's like, well. Even if you go with God as a necessary mind, like he didn't feel hungry. So, just the whole thing is really cool and complex. And I love that you start the book this way. And I want to motivate people, especially, especially Christian theists, like step in and expand your mind a little bit, really think deeply about it. You don't have to like let go of all your convictions, but think about like what what are we saying here? It's, it's, it's magical, Get man. It's so cool. About it. Yeah, because
0: yeah. there's just more wisdom I think that springs out of the geyser of curiosity. I mean, for me, when I think about just like particles moving around there's sort of this construction problem which we'll talk about there's different angles there of of how you might construct thoughts and feelings or thinking things out of particles but there's also a kind of like prediction problem or a sort of a probability problem where you wouldn't just sort of expect without any sort of explanatory mechanism that particles are going to sort of turn into feelings Um, at least i wouldn't expect i mean i'll just speak for myself like that seems sort of bizarre in a way. And then if I say, well, feelings are just there at the base of reality, you know, God feels, it was like, I'm like, what, Like, why are we in a reality that has feelings, Parker? That, that just right. is very bizarre, Right, <laughs> it's very right. strange in a way.
1: Well, so yeah. you, you, you broach this problem and then you, you bring up um, three obstacles to progress. One is the mist of uncertainty. Uh, The second is widespread disagreement on the nature of consciousness. And then the third one is prior paradigms. I thought maybe we could just touch on each of those. What what do you mean by the the mist of uncertainty?
0: So, yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's difficult to sort of make heads or tails of theories of consciousness, especially when uh, all the experts kind of disagree. Um, And so there's sort of this feeling like, well, you know, how could you really know anything? And I think this can actually inspire a healthy humility. Um, you know you might think you have sort of an answer, but this is related to the the prior paradigms problem, actually, which is that I think sometimes people come to this topic with a prior paradigm. Yeah. Um, sometimes I talk with people they they have a very strong conviction about what what science tells us about the nature of the mind. And you know the question is, well, does that paradigm about what science tell us actually match with our latest scientific studies is you know or is there an analysis of what the studies are telling us that really makes the best sense of yeah. of that data um, and then yeah from sort of religious uh, or spiritual traditions there are frameworks that can sometimes make it hard for people to sort of think with new eyes or to look at the data with new eyes and i think that's been i think for me one of the biggest and maybe the most fun parts of this project is it's just kind of like looking at the topics again with new eyes and just seeing, yeah. okay, what can I see about these things? Um, but I think that because there's a lot of controversy, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of disagreements and a lot of different competing paradigms, I think that does create sort of a barrier for people to even look into this for themselves. Yeah. And one of the things I really try to do in the book is I try to empower the reader or to really in a way show that the reader already has the powers, great powers, to see into things yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Um, and it's more than you might realize. I We did this study. I um, had a student, we did this empirical study. to see. I saw that, and, yeah.
1: yeah, that was, that was yeah. amazing. Dude, I love that you, you you did that in Necessary Existence, I think, too. I love yeah. that you do studies, like it's so cool.
0: Beliefs. Yeah, so we did this, and we haven't yet published this, but we have some very interesting data yeah. where we uh, we surveyed people and just kind of asked for their sort of impressions about premises in longer form arguments uh related to consciousness. And that this is gonna highlight again the value of analysis because what happened was you have a lot of people, I, I think it was like most people, um, but for modesty, let me say a lot of people who reported premises that ended up um contradicting their belief about the nature of themselves. Yeah. Um and we had arguments for the existence of a kind of like materialist vision of human persons and then arguments against an exhaustively materialist picture of human persons. Yeah. And on both sides, people had uh, beliefs that they already kind of had that when you tease those out, you put their their own premises together and you just apply deduction to their own premises. Mm-hmm. You get a conclusion that contradicts something else that reported in the study. Right. Um, so that to me is very fascinating. I think it shows the value of analysis, but I think it also highlights the, power that people have to kind of pay attention to some things that they already believe and then Mm -hmm. take some time to tease out what those things would imply and take some time to sort some of things they already have access to some observations they can already uh, make for themselves. And that's what I try to do in the book is try to show you actually have some powers to check some things within your own mind, your own thoughts and feelings. And we'll talk about this. Um, and through careful checking, careful paying attention, and then re- using reason to make deductions, you can actually, I believe, see some very important things um, yeah. about who you are. I- I'm actually quite confident that you can have knowledge. Um, I-, I think sometimes people get confused about the difference between something being unknown and something being uncontroversial. Hmm. And so I think there's a, a little bit of a-, of a barrier here is it is just because there's a lot of controversy doesn't mean that you can't personally come to know something. Yeah, An example I like to use that kind of, I think helps to make this obvious is it is actually controversial among philosophers, whether it's true that two plus two equals four, that's controversial, right? yeah. It's controversial among philosophers, whether, you know, that, 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 that there are any numbers, uh, right between, let's say two and six. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but does not mean that you can't personally come to think or to even know that is, that is true. Uh, we mentioned it's controversial that there are people, that people exist. Yeah. You know, um, it's controversial that matter exists. Um, you know, it's controversial, like everything's controversial in certain quarters, right? And yeah. it doesn't mean, and, and, and I mean, in among the sort of experts thinking about these things, there's controversy there, but it doesn't mean that you can't like know anything. And, and I think the way to get knowledge and the way to have a certain confidence in your own knowledge is to actually recognize some of the things that you can see directly for yourself. Um, and that, I think in a way means maybe like taking your authority back I think sometimes we give our our powers away to others. We let other people think for us and and then we start getting confused. It's hard to sort of see things for ourselves um, because other people are kind of telling us what to believe. But what I find is that if I can sort of take my power back and pay attention to like what's most clear to me and separate the clear from the unclear, I'll begin to see, okay, it looks like I'm actually observing this over here. I could be wrong. I can still keep that sort of humility, willingness to be corrected. But it looks like I'm, I'm seeing some things here. Yeah. And that's, that's the approach I take in the book. I really want the readers to feel empowered on their journey. They can disagree with me at every step of the way. Um, that's good because that means they're thinking for themselves. I invite that. Yeah. Um, I want to show the powers they already have to test everything that I'm saying. And I want to point to those powers. I mean, in a way, I'm showing them something that they can see, I think, pretty easily. I think it's possible to see it. But sometimes people sort of need the permission to see some things that can be right before them.
1: I, I think, think that's right. I think it's a great word, permission there, and, and taking back your your power, your authority. Yeah. Uh, all the epistemologists are going to say, well, what about disagreement literature? And like, well, relax. Hold on. That's just a second. <laughs> yeah. But so you bring up these tools of inquiry that I thought w- would be cool to just to uh, introduce. And uh, everyone should go buy the book uh, for these. But uh, you have introspection, reason, and the scientific method. And I I did have a little bit of a like a like a triggered moment when you're talking about reason, because I didn't have the permission to be like, yeah, you know, um, the laws of logic, you know, we can use that because I've got the non-classical guys in my head. And I'm like, it's it's very Mm -hmm. controversial nowadays if Mm -hmm. we're talking about the law of non-contradiction. So even what you said right there, it's like I have permission to, like, believe in in classical logic. Yeah,
0: you can check that. I mean, you know, if if the law of non-contradiction doesn't seem to hold up to your own analysis, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. I use that as an example of something, you know, but, um, but sure, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic about that. In fact, on the contrary, that's the whole point is I want to invite people to sort of consider, I mean, I mean, look, look the arguments against the law of non-contradiction proceed from reason. Right. Right. I mean, they're using reasons, right? So um, you don't want to sort of cut the branch off that you're standing. (laughs) on. So good. Yeah. Um so you have
1: in, introspection reason and the scientific method, um which is you, know, you um, cash out as testing hypothesis and making relevant observations. So like really, really easy tools yeah. to just go out and and do your work. I actually have a journal where I just do this. I don't I haven't written in a bunch, but I, I do what you're saying, where i I sit down somewhere, I make myself just think, and I go certain things like uh, I really like bad guys in movies. Uh, like like Gaston was my hero growing up. Uh, maybe i'm just like a sick jerk but i I thought about like why do i like gaston instead of the beast and i thought through like what's what's up with me why do i like these kind of characters um and and i did a lot of this i used introspection and reason and i didn't use a whole ton of scientific method but i like that man so when i think about what a philosopher should be i think you're a really good example for the rest of us i'm an aspiring philosopher um like being a little bit on like the woo-woo side, like close approaching woo being really like excited about life, but also being rigorous and being like, uh-huh. well, we're not just going to speculate and throw things out. We need to have the imagination and the reason too. So just want to yeah. commend you for that, man. I, I appreciate you being a, a light for the rest of us to to do it like this.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, one of my goals, I really want people to feel empowered in their own search. And I think yeah. that's something that, you know, we can all relate to this feeling of being a little uncertain of what to think. And, and I, I think that one thing I try to do and I, ha- and I try to do this because I notice times when I don't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I just don't notice when I'm not doing this, but I'm trying to get better at this. this. is almost like releasing myself from feeling like I need to sort of show you this path that I'm so excited about. Yeah. And instead, almost like helping others to see, you know, you actually have so much power to see paths. Your your unique experiences allow you to see lines along a path that are based on a unique life history so that you can actually get excited about some information that you're seeing that like nobody else is really seeing it. And like, and we need your information. So I I need your site. It's like what you said at the beginning, you know, if people want to provide comments below about anything that they disagree with about anything we're saying. That's great because that serves me. That helps me see more things. And I really mean that most sincerely. Uh, I think people underestimate their own powers to see things.
1: Yeah. I know you, I know you do, because I've, I've heard, I think last time we talked, you'd mentioned about how you always bring up something related to truth and your students kept saying like the same answer again and again. You're like, well, I should think about that more because they're all saying it. And (laughs) it's like, yeah. Against
0: the philosophers, because I'm thinking, well, the philosophers aren't going to think that what you're saying is very serious. Right. And then I'm like turning it over in my mind. Like, oh, I think you have a point there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Well, uh, so you you bring up this um, construction challenge, which I think is really, really fun and really good. It's the challenge of seeing how to construct conscious beings by any means. And at first, you know, I think the construction problem, well, that's for the materialists or even like the emergentists. Um, that's that's for them. But it's like the challenge of seeing how to construct conscious beings by any means. Uh, yeah. Can Can you help us flesh that out for, for everyone? Okay.
0: So, Parker, imagine you're having a dream. Hmm. And imagine it's one of those dreams where, I don't know if you can relate to this, where you, you realize you're dreaming. You know yeah. that you're dreaming. Now mm-hmm. you can take control. Now it's not like 100% control. Even when I know that I'm dreaming, I'll try to right. fly. Sometimes it's a struggle, but usually I can have more control once I know I'm dreaming. So let's mm-hmm. imagine that I'm having this dream. I see my wife. Oh, I'm talking about your dream. I'm talking about my dream. Okay, so imagine you see somebody in your dream that you know and you like or whatever. And then you think to yourself, hmm, I know that's a dream character. But I'd be, I think it'd be really cool if that dream character... Or real. And so you think, Hmm, I want to turn that dream character into a real conscious being. Mm. I've had dreams like this where I did see my wife in my dream and I knew I was dreaming, but it was like, you know, it's like you kind of know you're dreaming, but part of you still like feels like you're not dreaming. So I was like telling my wife, I was like, okay, Rachel, uh, you're not real. um, So you're not really going to remember any of this, but like some part of me feels like I'm really telling her, like she's Mm -hmm. getting this information, right? (laughs) You're not real, but now I'm going to make you real. I'm going to do something in my mind, in my consciousness, and I'm going to transform this imaginary character into a real conscious self. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, Parker, but I can tell you, like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to make a conscious self. I mean, not just by thinking, yeah. not just by wanting, you know? And so I think, well, that, that does kind of raise this question. Like, well, how, how do conscious selves come to be? I mean, if you say, well, there's this original mind and it can produce a conscious self. But how does it do that? How, how can any mind produce another conscious being? How is that even possible in principle? Yeah. And this is like one of the most difficult. This is probably the most difficult question of the whole book. Yeah. So, you know that that I prepare the reader for appreciating the challenge. Um, and it, that is a hard question.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, you when I, when I said like the the woo the woo woo stuff like. I mean that in the best possible way because I think there there's like that's like the magic of philosophy that like undergrads yeah. think they're like, Oh, I'm gonna think like I'm gonna think about st- like stoner thoughts. I'm gonna have to-. and then they lose that when they become philosophers. Some right. of them lose that when they become philosophers and they're they're like all serious and embarrassed about stuff. But um you have Don't this- use the word woo.
0: Philosophers hate being associated with woo Parker. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. that's right. That's
0: right. I do exactly what you meant. It's that wonder, that feeling of creativity being sort of on the edge. Yeah. Something new.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. well, so you, you every now and then you'll you'll just drop in something and you got I had to pull this quote because you said a mind is a realm of consciousness. And I was like, dang, and it hit me. I had to read it a couple of times. A, a mind is a realm of consciousness. And I think that that bolsters that problem of uh, constructing consciousness, because if it's a realm, which it is like a mind is a realm of consciousness because I can close my mind I can close my eyes and go to my mind and I can construct things or like you said in the dream it's if this it's cool. an illusion,
0: right? If it's real, if it's real. Yeah.
1: yeah. But like just, yours is like different than mine there. because I can't, yeah. you can't make me into your dream. You can't bring me. I've, I've checked. Absolutely. I, I've yeah. checked with people when I've dreamt, I've dreamt about them. I'm like, did you have this dream last night? And they're like, no. And I, I never get it. I'm always hoping like maybe we had a shared dream. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's this realm of consciousness. And if yeah. you think about it that, that way, the way you put it, it's like, how am I going to create this whole realm of consciousness that's separate from mine? I can play when my own realm, but I can't make yeah. another realm.
0: crazy yeah um or at least it's not clear how you can make another realm sort of in the current context that you're in yeah you know you know maybe there could be a possible power that you could have that would allow you to make another realm um but evidently you know i don't have that power and um so then you know how can there even be that power you know is is the question
1: yeah yeah, and some some people might be might comment right now and they talk about kids or something like, well, you made another one that way. And it's like, yeah, but do you know how you did it? It's not like the lucid dream <laughs> where you're making things like. it's just yeah. it's this biological process. But what what is happening? Where where did that come from? You know, and yeah. and then you get in like the problem of other minds and like, how do I know it's not a philosophical zombie or something, right?
0: Yeah, this is so difficult to talk about because there's like two things going on at once here. So one thing is the nature of you like wh- mm. you know what what is a conscious self like what what is that
1: yeah
0: um, you know is it even real you know what is that is it even real and then there's the, that construction problem like well how do you produce that like by any means whether by by another mind or by by uh, matter yeah. um, but the reason why I just kind of want to highlight that complexity because even the idea that you produced your kids gets caught up into this complexity. What is it that you produce there? I mean, I had a newborn about a month ago. Yeah. Cutest little thing. Um, And what I see when I look at his body is a configuration, a geometric configuration or a spatial configuration, not unlike the spatial configurations that I seem to see when I'm dreaming. Yeah. Um, Those spatial configurations are there, but those spatial configurations aren't themselves first person conscious beings. You know, yeah. now maybe you could have a dream character where the dream character maybe represents uh, somebody else. I've had yeah. dreams where I'm open to the idea that those dreams were from another intelligence. I'm open to that because of the specific information I got from the character. Yeah. Um, but the character that that visual spatial representation is not the totality of a first person being. Yeah. At least according to certain steps on, on this path that, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to zoom into every step, but, but if, if that's right, okay. So if, if the spatial properties, the spatial body, the spatial manifestation of my newborn is not the entirety of the conscious being, the conscious self, then merely having one body lead to another body doesn't by itself even verify the production of a new conscious being. Yeah, Or or explain how that's possible, right? Yeah. Maybe there's a kind of correlation. So we have evidence that when there are bodies that are animated in a certain way, that there's a conscious being there, right? But, but merely having evidence, and I think this is an important point, I think sometimes people skip past this, is that merely having evidence that there's conscious beings correlated with certain geometric formations doesn't thereby give you an explanation of how the conscious beings came to be in the first place. Right. Can you like change some sand and then by changing the sand produce a first person conscious being that has thoughts and feelings, right? Um, not just acts like it does, but actually has that inner realm of consciousness. Is that even possible in principle? Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot we could say about that question, but I think that just by making the distinction between the spatial aspect and The being itself, I think that can help us appreciate the challenge of the question. It's it's a question with respect to mental materials. How does a mind produce another mind and non-mental mindless materials? How does, how do mindless grains of sand turn into a storm that looks like a brain and then out of that brain pops a self, right? Right. And I I think this is part of the reason why people, many people say, no, there aren't any first person selves. It's, it's, it's making the argument from the origin to the nature, right? Yeah. The, the origin is a brain. We know that, but a brain can't all on its own produce a real conscious first person self, not in the way that we sort of maybe witness ourselves introspectively. Therefore, there aren't, that's not really there. Yeah. Um, but then you could argue the other way. You could say, well, you know, I am here, I, consciousness, me. Uh, and so now either you say somehow in a way we don't understand the material produced the mental or some other mind produced the mental. Um, or, well, I guess the or is uh, you're stuck with this problem, right? Yeah. But I think I think focusing on the problem and, and allowing it to sort of bring to life your own curiosity is the way that you can get more wisdom. Yeah. That is the way to get more insight into how you can be constructed. And I mean, in the end, I do offer a model that it goes through the constraints of science and uh, reason mm-hmm. um, and all the observations and that's not an easy project to do that to find that pathway constraints but i think there is a way way through
1: yeah the the idea about the so I, i've heard you talk about maybe with maybe with golf i've heard you talk about um, making a thought conscious and it was really clear there that's like no you have a conscious thought but the thought itself isn't conscious yeah yeah um but then this this idea about a person in your dream is like kind of blowing my mind because you could go the extreme and you can say there is no consciousness or you could go the other extreme and say everything is conscious or you could go even deeper on that path and say yeah your dream characters are conscious and maybe mm-hmm. you have a, maybe you have a dream of your infant son and he's actually talking to you and it's like you have more evidence if you're just going with geometric shape that yeah. that dream uh, baby is more is is conscious you have more evidence of that than than the other one uh the
0: real baby in base reality wherever we're more introspective evidence maybe um Yeah, no, I I feel what you're saying there. I I love what you're saying, because it's pointing to this sort of materials problem. It's the problem of like, what materials can be conscious? Yeah, right. And I think it can be very clear that that certain materials can't be conscious. I mean, look, even if an image in a dream were conscious, what I would say is it's not strictly the image that's conscious, it's the image is sort of representing some conscious being. Yeah. That, that's what I would say, but yeah. I mean, then I wanna say something similar about spatial realities outside my dream,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. And this is gonna get into the nature of spatial realities and the nature of matter, which I don't know if I wanna enter that right here, but yeah. just to point to, um, I mean, this is, this is why people from all circles and, and many different fields um, are puzzling about these questions because they're all sort of entangled with many different other pieces. But I think we can get some clarity by zooming in on certain materials, like thoughts don't think. Okay? Yeah. Thoughts don't think. Yeah. Um, numbers don't think. Um, now, how, how do I know that? How do I know that? I mean, I mean it's, it's not just that thoughts don't display the characteristics of being thinkers themselves. Because watch this. Imagine you're in a video game that's full immersion. And it creates the, uh, it stimulates your brain, let's say it goes right into your brain, stimulates the visual experience, kind of like in the matrix sure. of other characters. And imagine, I mean, th- this, is, this is good. This is good. Your, your listeners are gonna get blown away by this, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so imagine that you, you're playing this game and you come up to what looks like a brain. It displays all the spatial aspects of a brain. Now, you could even imagine, just to kind of fill this out, that in this illusion, let's say, some parts of the illusion represent other parts of the illusion. So maybe there's a painting of a brain over on somebody's wall. So you say, oh, that's just a representation. Yeah. You know, you yeah. could even imagine falling asleep in this matrix scenario and having a dream of a brain. You say, oh, that dream image is about a brain. Then you wake up, but you're still in the simulation and you go back, you see this brain structure. Okay. Now, but this is all still imagery in your mind. Now, I think that it is possible to see that this material, this brain imagery is the wrong kind of material to have its own thoughts and feelings in the same way that one sees that thoughts and numbers don't have their thoughts and feelings. You see it by seeing, having insight into the nature of the thing. I'm not saying this is easy to see, but I think it is possible to concentrate on the nature of the thing, the nature of a number and see that numbers don't think. You can concentrate on the nature of a visual image and you see visual images don't think. You concentrate on the nature of a spatial reality and spatial realities, whether in a dream or out in the world, outside of a dream, don't in virtue of their spatial uh, aspects alone think. Yeah. Now maybe you could have a spatial image that represents a thinking being, but it's not just in virtue of the spatial aspects that it would be thinking, wrong category, wrong material.
1: Well, Josh, does that extend, so um, without, I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead or anything, but if you're a, a thinking substance, what, does this, you're, you're saying, I believe you're saying, just in virtue of spatial extension, that, that says nothing about consciousness or not, or are you saying like spatial extension precludes uh, the consciousness, because then it would have implications for whether our thinking substance is extended in space or not. I, I know well, you said you didn't want to get into it it's extension. good.
0: yeah, no, because there's a number of distinct theses. and like so some of these, I, I like to separate them because some I think are like easier to verify than others, or some maybe I have more confidence in than others. And yeah, for sure. everyone, obviously, people can disagree. but um so one one thesis here is that it's not merely in virtue of the spatial aspects of a thing that that thing thinks, right okay, so that that's that's one thing. Um, another thing would be that the spatial aspects would preclude thinking. Yeah. Now I don't want to say that I'm less, I'm less clear about that.
1: Sure. And the reason
0: why I'm less clear about that is because it could be that there's a certain kind of substance that could have both spatial aspects and thinking powers. Yeah. Um, this is something that I've kind of toyed with for a long time and I've become more doubtful of that. I think just to be honest, like, I think just between us, you know, listening, (laughs) um, (laughs) I I think thinking about the sort of mental nature of spatial objects in my dreams. And some people say, well, that's mere representation. But thinking about the nature of representation uh, has me thinking that that if, if 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 a spatial brain could think, then so could images in my dreams think. And I don't mm-hmm. think images in my dream, it, like like if an image were shaped like a brain and functioning like a brain, it could be thinking. And since I don't think that an image functioning like a brain in a dream could think, this leads me to doubt that any spatial structures could think, even if they're shaped like a brain. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I do think brains and thinking are connected in, in deep ways, and we could talk about that and why that might be. Um, but but after all this, let me just say I'm I'm not I don't have the sort of clearest feelings about this, and so. Yeah and my thinking's sort of been in development on that. Sure. Um, but what I feel like I am quite confident in, like just like very sure about is that it's not merely in virtue of the spatial aspects of a dream image or a brain um, that a thing has that internal first person experience of thinking and feeling. Yeah. It, it might be that it can have certain functions as if it's thinking or feeling in virtue of its spatial manipulations. Um, but I would say that that's a different matter. And, and let me just be clear that isn't to say that there aren't law like connections between certain functional spatial aspects and certain right. thinking and feeling. Um, it's just that the spatial aspects alone aren't doing the work. It would be yeah. the spatial aspects together with these laws. And then the deeper explanation is going to have to do with what explains the laws.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you show that, I mean, you go through, um, eliminativism and behaviorism and type identity and, and, uh, functionalisms okay. and stuff yeah. to, to, to show all yeah. that, which is, which is really great. So again, look in the book. Um, yeah. I, I always wonder about extension and like spatial objects and thinking things. Cause like, I think God is probably extended throughout all of uh, creation um, through like the doctrine of immensity or something, but like, he's not a spatial object um, or he's spirit, you know, well, so that,
0: like, is that spatial extension, you know, I mean, that, yeah, how right. do we analyze that, right. I mean, yeah, it it's could be, they could be just reading some of, the, some of what the quantum field theorists are saying, you know, and this is not my area, but some of them, sure. what they're saying is that, that it looks like the spatial realities are not fundamental. Um, that in fact, spatial realities, Carlo Rovelli makes this argument, spatial realities he thinks are projections of an underlying non-spatial um, sub, uh, reality. Wow. And, and he thinks it has informational aspects that sort of determine its spatial aspects in some way. And he kind of leaves open the metaphysics of right how that works um but if that's right you know then it seems like you know if if god is a fundamental reality right (laughs) god is then prior to spatial reality then god's immensity might not be analyzed in terms of sort of spatial immensity yeah that makes sense yeah i think it does
1: i think it does i always go with like the authorial analogy like like c.s lewis was present he's immense in his uh novels Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, yeah. but yet he's not like actually located there. I don't know. Yeah, it's- Or even
0: in your dreams. I, I think about this because like, are you located in your dreams? That's what I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, I know people say, well, dreams don't have space. Well, there's some kind of phenomenal space. I like, I start losing my grip. Like, what do you mean by space? If dreams yeah. don't have space? Like, what I don't even know what you mean by space. If, if what you mean by space is something that I have no conscious awareness of. Okay, fine. But <sighs> what I have a conscious awareness of in my dreams, and I've had too many dreams where I like knew I was dreaming and I was like, Hey, what is that? there's extension there there's yeah things over here and it's moving right right and it's like well where am i am i located in my dream well maybe my avatar is if i even have one sometimes yeah. i have dreams and it's like i'm just acquainted with what's there whoa i, don't I have an avatar you Dude, know you got
1: some crazy dreams i want to plug yeah. into your dreams this is cool
0: come <laughs> have a dream well join me in my dreams we can have a yeah. shared dream <laughs> that's right that's right um
1: you you do you use this thing called a direct comparison test, and I don't know if that's uh, original to you or not. Is that is that your thing? Yeah, you use that a lot, and it's really really helpful for. I mean, you use it like to cut through a lot of different things, like um, eliminativism. I believe you're using it here. You you say, um, you can tell by introspection that some of your feelings differ from others. Uh, for example, happiness differs from sadness. Uh, pr- premise two, if some of your feelings differ from others, then you have some feelings. Three, therefore, you have some feelings. And I feel like you huh. – I think that you've been doing this uh, as well with with dream stuff uh, in, in dreams within dreams. And you go through thoughts and feelings, and you're using this direct comparison test, which is so simple to use. And it's just – it's such a cool tool that I – I'm really excited for people to start using this tool, man, because it's, I appreciate it's cutting that. Yes. through all this deep stuff, but you're this just is saying one of the powers, them.
0: this is yeah. one of the untapped powers. Yeah. You know, like this is, I can get very excited about this because I think people have so many powers that they just don't know that they have, or they're untapped or they're too familiar. Or there's, they're not like recognized powers. It's like the recognized powers to know things are your five senses. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's like this question, maybe you have this spooky sixth sense, you know, yeah. Can you get knowledge by introspection? Can you get knowledge? By... It's like, no, 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 there, There's nothing spooky about your ability to see that true is not false. Right. You know, there, there might be debates about what's true and what's false, but that being true is not one of the same thing as being false, Yeah. right? Or being a square is not one of the same thing as being a triangle. Sometimes I've, I've asked my students to, to kind of draw out their power to see distinction. Uh, how do you know? that a square is not a triangle. How do you know that, right? And then somebody will say, because a square has four sides, triangle has three sides. Okay, but wait, how do you know that four is not the same as three? Right. It's like, oh, it's because, you know, and then if you get technical, well, four is a successor of the successor of the successor of like zero or whatever. It's got one more successor, but that just relocates the question back. At some level, you have this power to see distinction in a basic way. Yeah. And I believe the way this works is that if you're consciously aware of the items in question, then you can distinguish them. So if you're consciously aware of a feeling of happiness and a a thought of two, then you can distinguish or compare the feeling of happiness with the thought of two and see that they're different, you can compare them directly. So, and that's how this works. And then we can use this to get some information about the nature of consciousness, because for example, you can bring to your conscious awareness a feeling of happiness, and then you can compare That with, I like to use simple examples just to sort of illustrate the power with a triangle, right? You can compare that. And you say, well, is the feeling of happiness, is what it's like to have the feeling of happiness, you know, if you can be sort of aware of that aspect, that quality, is it the same as the triangular quality? Are they the same? Mm -hmm. And what I say is that if you can get them both in your awareness, you can just compare them directly and test whether they're the same by your own light. Okay? Yeah. I'm not going to fill in you know the answer to this. you just yeah. test that now. Now some people listening to this or watching this you know they might think, well, you know h- how do you know that you' you're really seeing two different things rather than one thing from two different angles? Mm-hmm. People love to bring up the water h2o example sure. uh, where you know the idea is that you can drink some water, here's some water you know and, and you don't realize that this is the same thing as h2o, the molecular structure H2o and so it looks like by science we do learn that water is h2o um but we can't sort of just figure this out by the direct comparison test
1: yeah
0: you know you can't just like compare them in fact if you did compare you might think "Hmm, the h2o molecule and the watery thing they seem different (laughs) right right so direct comparison test fails it leads to error so how do you know that it hasn't failed in your analysis of consciousness Mm -hmm. And, and by the way i feel like i have to actually talk about this For people to feel um, confidence in the direct comparison test, otherwise they're always going to feel like I'm missing something. Like, like yeah, too simple,
1: too easy. Yeah, yeah. too armchairy or something. Kind
0: of naive. You know, you're too quick to get to woo, Josh. You know, we know (laughs) you like woo. (laughs) We know where you're going. And I mean, I don't know if this is like a quirk in my personality, but I, I, it's almost like I like it if somebody has this resistance to a view, but then I just show them like that it has to be true without identifying the roots of their resistance. Um, But on a psychological level like that, it just doesn't work, right? So you want to think about the roots of the resistance. (laughs) Yeah. So, Yeah. um, So I have to at least display my awareness of at least one of these roots. It's not the only one. But, you know, the worry is that you could think that water is different from H2O because you are like comparing them in your mind, but they're actually the same thing. And we really, what we need is the science to sort of help us figure that out. And in the same way, maybe what science does it, is it gives us this sort of knowledge of the nature of our feelings through studying the nature of the brain. So you yeah. just discover, you know, there's this neurological activity over here and it's corresponding with this person having a feeling, it happens every time. And well, that makes sense if the feeling just is that neurological structure. The neurological structure is this sort of H2O of the feeling it's it's the nature of of the feeling right so you know so what do i have to say about that well here i just want to make a distinction which is that when you're using the direct comparison test for it to be successful like when you compare let's say a feeling of happiness with the color blue or the thought that two plus two equals four, when you compare those things what's going on there is you have those items in your direct conscious awareness yeah it works when they're in your direct conscious awareness when it comes to H2O and and uh, water, I don't have direct conscious awareness of the molecular structure. And now you might think, well, don't you have direct conscious awareness of the water? Well, we have to be careful here. I do have direct conscious awareness of the watery experience, okay? Yeah. Or of maybe some macroscopic properties that are determined by the microscopic molecular structure. Um, but I don't have the direct conscious awareness of H2O. In fact, if I did have direct conscious awareness of H2O, then I wouldn't need that sort of scientific empirical investigation to give me that insight into the deep structure. I can yeah. just tell you right away, I have conscious awareness of it. Um, and so the direct comparison test, it, it only works, you can only apply it when you have conscious awareness of the items in question. But here's a nice little um, bonus. If you have conscious awareness of something, and you don't have conscious awareness of something else, then you can use a different test, which is not direct comparison, it's just a deduction, which is that, um, this goes back to the coin example. Um, if the front side of the coin is the same as the back side of the coin, then if I have awareness of the front side, I thereby have awareness of the back side. Mm-hmm. But if I don't have awareness of both sides, yes. that's enough yes. to verify that they're different. So yes. the way that I think about this is, let's go to an example. I think about my feeling of, of happiness. So I have this feeling right now, I'm, I'm content, talking with you, kind of excited, I, I'm aware of these feelings and they're within my introspective conscious awareness. Now I don't have that same introspective conscious awareness of the molecular structure of my brain right now or the functioning of my brain. I don't, I don't, I don't recognize that aware. I don't have that awareness. Um, mm-hmm. I'm actually aware that I don't have that awareness. And we could talk more about the conscious impact of awareness. If I have awareness, it has conscious impact so that I can be aware of my awareness. Yeah. So I'm not aware of my awareness Good. of the molecular structure. And so what this means is that now by deduction, I can verify there has has to be something different. Even even while the molecular structure is deeply connected with my consciousness, they're not one of the same side of me. They're not one of the same aspect. There's yeah. kind of a dual aspect there. Um, and, and also I, I want to say, I think that I actually do have direct conscious awareness of some aspects of let me try it like this. Well, let's say that my brain has some spatial aspects. Like it has some shapes in there. Well, I do have dreams where I think that I can be consciously aware of some shapes. And, and then I think that I can compare those shapes with feelings. Hmm. Now, Some people listen to this and might say, well, those aren't shapes. Those are representations of shapes. It's like, okay, well then if, if that's your analysis of what those are, then we go back to, they have to be diff- different because they're not in my awareness. Right. Uh, but I'm happy to call them shapes. I mean, I think okay. it's just a vocabulary issue. Yeah. You know, we call them shapes or shapes. Yeah,
1: yeah, shape star or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, um, but whatever they are, I can compare those things, those spa- phenomenal spatial things, and then distinguish them from my feelings. And, mm-hmm. and this may sound sort of like basic, but it has such far reaching implications about who we are and where we came from. This is why there is such a range of views about the nature of consciousness, including the view that there is no consciousness or the view that the consciousness reduces to and is analyzed in terms of the material. Yeah. Because if we can verify by direct comparison that there's more to you than the mindless pattern of particles, well, then this opens up a big door to um, seeing into who you are. And it has huge ramifications going back to that problem of construction. How could you even exist? It yeah. exacerbates that problem, um, but then helps us to, kind of shave off theories that wouldn't account for your consciousness yeah. if your consciousness really is real and not reducible to the mindless matter that yeah
1: yeah it t- totally doesn't and one of the theories uh, shaved off is um uh type type what is it called just type, type identity? yeah type identity yeah, yeah yeah uh but i was thinking like um like grand uh i was surprised to learn recently that he was a, a type theorist i um, saw before, that yeah. That before was, I had me to. that
0: was very helpful. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, well, no,
1: no. I, I I didn't know that beforehand. Uh, before you know, I, I set up this conversation. I knew that he didn't. That he argued against uh, like J.P. Moreland's um, dualism, and so I was like, let's set up this conversation. And then I was like, well, what does be? think? And I saw uh, yeah. identity theory, and I was like, wow, a type identity theory. And I was like, wow, that is pretty wild. And I still don't think I understand what he meant by like scales and 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 stuff like that. It, at one point, it sounded kind of sound like he was an emergentist. And I don't i don't mean that to say like he was muddled. You know, I was probably muddled in that because he's super sharp.
0: And he's very but, clear-minded. But yeah. can, I, can I jump in on this? Please, because please jump that, in. Please. That conversation you had with Abby was very helpful for me because okay. I've had conversations with him before about his type identity theory. And I mean, if there's anything that seems clear to me, it's that there's some distinction between consciousness and um, patterns of, of particles. Right. Um, you know, right. that, that seems very clear, but he helped me realize that his difference is actually, I, I'm pretty sure it's merely verbal. Um, okay. and here's why. So <laughs> these are terms of art. Uh, one of the terms of art here is, is what you mean by physical property. Mm-hmm. So Oppie's type identity is that conscious properties are identical with physical properties. Okay. Yeah. Now, John Searle, he's sort of famous for arguing against, um, well, functionalist analyses of consciousness, mm-hmm. and so some people have said, "Well, you're a property dualist, then, Searle." And so he's got this article called "Why I'm Not a Property Dualist." <laughs> no disrespect to, to Searle at all; I've, I hold him in the highest regard. But I was not convinced by his argument that he himself is not a property dualist.
1: Right.
0: Well, it's just it's just a vocabulary issue because I think what's going on here is that what what um, the way that Searle is defining physical. And I got this from, from Oppy that I think his notion of physical is just broad enough to include these subjective qualitative aspects of conscious experience. Yeah. I think, at least I think he, his view allows for that possibility from everything that he said. I don't know if he, if he would necessarily follow that path there, but it, it sounded like he was gonna allow for that because, yeah, he was talking with Mike Humor, and Mike Humor was drawing out, you know, the sort of phenomenal aspects of consciousness. And I think that what Appy was wanting to say is that those things really um, are real. And the difficulty, though, is that they can have a functional impact in a brain. And so you can think of them functionally. Yeah. But the functional impact is actually a aspect of the aspect. It's a functional aspect of the aspect.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. So, so it's not it's not a it's day not day thing.
0: Day. It's yeah. 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 Got it. Absolutely. It's yeah. so yeah.
1: good. I, I, I only know that because Brandon Rickabaugh just hammered me on that just for like a whole year. And he's like, well, functionalism isn't a, it's not an analysis. And I'm like, dang it. Okay, fine. I, so he finally got me on that. Um, that's yeah. So, well, okay. So, so going all the way back, um, you, I like saying, I like using pain states because that's always in the literature talking about C fibers and stuff. And you actually, yeah. you, you called this mental state. Of pain you call it painy or let's call it pain. painy yeah. so so painy isn't uh c fiber firing because you can have this direct awareness of painy but not know and actually you know it's a lot of people have told me it's probably not c fibers firing that's pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah and it, that even like bolsters the argument where it's like yeah i don't know what's going on in here but i do know i'm in pain
0: yeah not directly you don't know it directly i mean you can maybe know it indirectly
1: right sure yeah yeah, yeah. but um well i don't i'm speaking for myself i i straight up just don't know um <laughs> What if what if someone push back on the the water H2O yeah. water H2O argument again and said like well look I have this direct awareness of this watery thing that's analogous to painy, but um, but I don't have a, awareness of the structure so therefore they're two different things just like painy is not sea uh, fire yeah. fiber firing I think I know what you're gonna say
0: but I just yeah, wanna... yeah yeah so, so I think what you have direct conscious awareness is the sort of watery experiences mm-hmm. or maybe some macro um, properties of water Um, but you're not consciously directly aware of the water in fact it's interesting because that term water it's maybe a bit ambiguous one way you could use the term water is to say water just means whatever it is that's giving me this watery experience yeah so it's kind of like it's opaque in the sense that you haven't like identified what it is just the word water just means whatever it is it's like i imagine this door where somebody's in the closet And we say, let's let George be the name of whatever it is, you know, whoever it is that's in the closet. We don't know who it is, right? Right. It's Rachel. (laughs) Hi, George. You know. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I I think if you use the term "water" in that way, it's an opaque term. Yeah. Uh, Kripke talks about this because he makes the point that that the way that you even understand the meaning of of opaque terms is by their experience in your own consciousness so so you can make a distinction between the thing that you're referring to opaquely Mm -hmm. and the thing that you're experiencing like so for example um go back to the door analogy well i have an experience with the door and with my referring to the door um so it's like like you know george is whoever's in the door okay well I don't know who's in the door yet but i do know my experience at the door well the experience of the door that's in consciousness that's not in the door yeah same thing with water like my experience of water that's in consciousness um or you know or maybe there's macroscopic properties of water that aren't actually molecular you know that that's a debate we could have but yeah um but but what i'm consciously aware of is not the molecular structure i don't have that conscious awareness of that and Mm -hmm. so that's enough to verify that whatever i do have conscious awareness of my feelings my thoughts um, the watery effects in my consciousness, those have to be different. Yeah. That's how I that, would think about that. That's good. Do you, do you
1: just to be clear, are you, is there any, like, uh, is mediation doing anything there? Like the water is still mediated through our senses. I'm being appeared to waterly, but I'm not really like appeared to painly. I just am directly aware that I'm in pain or not.
0: That's a very, very sharp question. And what I would do is I would give an analysis, um, along two different paths, so okay. um, so right here, I was trying to kind of efficiently describe the scenario without dividing and conquering, but <laughs> no, but, but your question, oh, your question is really wonderful because it, it draws out the role of perception, right so because one theory of perception would say that you're not really ever even directly aware of anything external, you're only aware of it sort of as it appears to you, right right? This is maybe an indirect um, awareness of the world. Another idea is that you know you are directly aware of the world. Um, the external world. Mm-hmm. And so now if we take the indirect awareness model, then um, that I'm only aware of water, like as it appears to me, and what I'm directly aware of are the appearances. Yeah, the experience. Well, then right away, we can see that the appearance of water is not the same thing as the water that causes that appearance. Those right. are different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so then, but the appearances is a real bit of consciousness. Right. And so that's something that I can then compare with things like molecular structures that are outside of my direct awareness. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So the the appearance is in my direct awareness. That's part of consciousness. If we take instead a a direct realist analysis of perception, right, then the idea is that I'm directly aware of of, um, some external properties of water. And so then I would just you know, wonder, well, which external properties of water am I directly aware of? If I'm directly consciously aware of the molecular structure of the water, then it seems like I would be able to just say instantly, you know, what the molecular structure is just by, I'm just aware of it. Right? Yeah, yeah,
1: right. right. Um, but
0: I don't, I don't have that, that kind of awareness. It looks like maybe on this sort of direct realism, externalist theory, that what I would be directly aware of would be maybe some macroscopic properties. Yeah. And in here, distinctions increase the resolution of our analysis, because we could say maybe those macroscopic properties are in some ways composed of microscopic properties, or maybe the macroscopic reality is composed of microscopic realities. So you have a kind of part-whole relationship. Mm -hmm. But still, the point is, is it's not identity. Yeah. And this is, oh, I'm so glad that we got to this point, because a lot of people have conflated Part-whole relations with identity relations, right? And so they're saying, well, Josh, like there could still be a kind of composition of your thought in terms of molecules, and it's like, okay, f- at, at, at this level of analysis, we can leave that open. Maybe there are other ways to check that. I have my my mindful thoughts theorem. We could talk about, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, as far as the dark comparison test goes, maybe maybe the thoughts, maybe the structure of thoughts, maybe the aboutness of a thought, the first person aspects of thoughts. Um, are composed of micro aspects um you know that's that's fine sure yeah still not identical right yeah. right
1: yeah yeah if that is the case then we, we would have to go back to and, and you do deal with um like like weak and strong emergence cuz cuz then we we'd have to tell a story of like well if if these are structured by the micro particles or something like yeah. why is it that they emerge or whatever okay well now it's, yeah, yeah it's absolutely just, it's right so the direct, yeah.
0: yeah so the direct comparison test answers some things i think right, right. but it doesn't answer everything yeah but then there are other tests to examine those other things to, yeah. to investigate those other things absolutely
1: I, I, all, yeah. all that to say man i i really like the direct comparison test because you're saying look i have these things in my awareness and you don't have to go in for like host rules uh like eidetic intuitions or any kind of like deep language that would be really hard to, to grasp. Yeah. It's just, this is a direct comparison test and here's all the things you get to do with it. So yeah. it's just fun, man. It's, it's It was really well, eye-opening. And I, and
0: I make the argument that this is pre-intuition. So yeah. Papineau, he, he's sort of famous for defending the type identity theory or some kind of identity theory. And he talks about this intuition of distinction. And so he, he's one of the best, I think, in, in representing the criticisms of his view very articulately, very charitably, it's like he understands. Um, so why somebody might think that there's something different about a feeling and a okay. neurological state, but he but he says there's a kind of intuition of distinction. And what I want to say is, no, the intuition is not your basis for seeing that for, for thinking that there's a distinction there. The intuition comes later. It's actually, I think, what's happening is that. Um, let me use an, a less. No, this is an uncontroversial example. I don't know anybody who would. Be against this, that being true is distinct from being false. Those aren't the same property, okay? Yeah. Okay. I mean, now that I've stated this theory, there's going to be somebody who's going to debate this, right? (sighs) I knew it. (laughs) Right. But, um, but I think what 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 happens here is not that I have this intuition that being true is distinct from being false, and then I think "Hmm, my intuition is reliable, so I'll believe that intuition, and now I believe true is different from false. No, no. no. I think what's happening is I have a just a direct, conscious acquaintance with true and false in my mind, I, I, there's examples of true things and false things that I've had, equ- I, mean, I guess I'm going by memory now. Sure. Um, and then I can just see the difference. And then the intuition is just what it's like consciously to tend to think that something's true. It's not necessarily the basis, it could be, but I mean, it, I don't think in this case, it's the basis. I think you just see the distinction. And then once you have that sight, then you can use that sight, that same power to see distinctions and you can investigate all sorts of things about your nature by looking yeah. within and checking.
1: Yeah. yeah, it it is such a basic thing. But it <clears throat> again, I think back to our last conversation when we we're talking about truth and how we can have true thoughts and how how magical that is and how yeah. privileged we are. Like being able to do these kind of things is a really we're in a really privileged place. Even though you're like, yeah, making distinctions, dude. Of course, uh, children can make distinctions. Like, yeah, but what kind of animal, you know, what kind of thing yeah. are we that we can make distinctions? Yeah. It's pretty wild that we just have that ability and I think you're right I think it is uh, you know pre preconceptual or whatever like we just have this ability we have this this power yeah. to do that I think so we cool. take
0: for granted the familiar things it's yeah. familiar that we can make distinctions but it's actually a very special power that we have yeah and the fact that reality has given rise to the power to see that one thing is different from another that's already magical right I mean it's just it's it's amazing it's yeah profound.
1: Yeah. So, so there's a couple, there's a couple of other things that you, when you're, uh, when you're analyzing thoughts, um, you talk about intentionality and we've talked about that on the show. Um, you do a great, great job there. You talk about truth and uh, logical connections, but you talked about structure and I got all excited about this because last time I had you on, we talked about structured propositions and, and this is just like the, I don't know, it's not an analog. Maybe it's an analog. It's just, it's like propositions over here and they're structured. And so, Thoughts are structured. So lay that out for us, man. The structure of thoughts.
0: So in that section, I'm talking about these aspects of thoughts that you can witness through introspection. And you need mm-hmm. the light of introspection to see these aspects yeah. directly. I mean, you, you'll never get there just looking at brains. So uh, one of the aspects is um, that a thought can be about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we talked about that. Another aspect is that a thought can contain um, content that's true or content that's false. Like the thought that snow is white, you know, contains content that that's true. Uh, but there's this other aspect that it's, again, one of those things that's so familiar, but it's like so profound that this yeah. exists. Yeah. It's structure. It's the order of things. So way to illustrate this is I, I talk about the thought that the cat is on the mat and then the thought that the mat is on the cat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, both of those thoughts have the same conceptual elements. Uh, The concept of a cat, the concept of a mat, the concept of on. But those thoughts are the same thought. The thought that the cat is on the mat and the thought that the mat is on the cat, those are manifestly different thoughts. How can they be different, Parker, if they have the same (laughs) conceptual elements?
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Well, what makes them different? And I think you just see this. You consciously see this in your mind. They have a different structure. The structure is the word that I use for the order of the elements it's the way the elements are arranged yeah so cat on mat mat on cat and by the way these elements are not the cat and the mat right it's it, these are conceptual elements
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, they, 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 these, these aren't chunks of matter this isn't i don't um, have a cat in your brain yeah. you don't have a cat in your brain and when you're looking at the thought again you're not even looking at axons or anything like that that's not what you're witnessing consciously right it, it's a structure there that is purely conceptual um it's real though. It's absolutely yeah. real. And then, and I also make the point that this structure is bedrock to logic and scientific reasoning. Mm-hmm. You know, because sometimes I think in our in our culture there's this kind of authority given to science because of the wonderful things that scientists have helped us to see and helped us to create. Um, and sometimes there's maybe a, a perceived conflict between the sort of powers and and results of science and some of these. Things I'm, I'm trying to point to within consciousness that aren't just purely analyzed in terms of spatial brains. Um, but what I want to say here is that not only isn't there a conflict, but that the structure, this conceptual structure, which is not a material uh, structure in a brain, is seeing this structure is bedrock to seeing logic itself. Yeah, because logic itself proceeds from deriving logical relations between contents, these structured contents of thoughts and the logical relations are themselves macro structures built out of smaller structures. And you can't do science unless you can make predictions from your observations to test your hypotheses. But to make predictions requires making deductions through logical lines. And you see Mm -hmm. these logical lines in the structures of thoughts. So it's just, I don't know, I get very excited about this because th- these are sort of bedrock metaphysical pieces yeah. of reality that allow science to take place. And if we can understand these things clearly through increasing the resolution of our analysis by paying attention to what's in our own minds, then we're I think we're more powerful at seeing even just the nature of our minds, the nature of the things that might be familiar, but we don't see just how profound they are, Yeah, these conceptual structures. Yeah.
1: I so I've heard um, like some of the phenomenologists following Husserl, uh, like Dallas Willard, will, will they'll talk about the uh, logical uh, connections, connectives, connections, um, and how science can account for them, and how they need yeah. to, you know, so so science can't can't you know uh, oust philosophy. And so I, I've I've been aware of that for a while. I've been excited about that. I love that. But it's even cooler that you go a step deeper into the structure of thoughts. Yeah. And again, it's 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 bordering on like the popular level idealists who are like, if you understand your mind, you can understand the world. And you're like, y- y- yes, but not the way you guys are doing it. Like, no, no. Yes. But no, yes. Thought can open up the world to you. And just like analyzing your thought this way, yeah. do it, do it that way. And and maybe I, I don't want to be too uncharitable to any, any of the, the popular idealists or anything, but, nice. uh, just, just saying, like, just because you're saying the same thing doesn't mean you're doing it in the same way. And I hear you. Yeah. It, it's just so cool to, to go at like thought because I have those in here, in not in here, but in my mind. Yeah. And I can understand the, the nature of the world because I have those.
0: Yeah. It's so foundational. And, and I think this shows how different people kind of looking at this topic from different angles can come together. And I, I know this is kind of a theme for me, but, you know, there's not this kind of conflict between looking within and seeing these structures of, your thought, these conceptual structures and then looking without or into brains, let's say, yeah. and then trying to figure out, okay, how are the arrangements of molecules related to these conceptual uh, arrangements? And there are deep intimate relations there. And we can even talk more about that, but, yeah. um, but those aren't in conflict at all. I mean, they, they can go together because we have tools to know both. We can use yeah. all of our tools together.
1: Yeah. I love that. Um I- I wanted to see if we could broach um, at least one, but maybe a couple of the the counting arguments that, okay. I mean, e- each one yeah. could be its own podcast. Um, yeah, maybe could you, yeah. could you give us like a, a broad overview and then maybe talk about the, the mindless noise
0: argument? So th- this is hard for me. Um, it's one of those things where it's difficult for me to take this kind of argument and break it down. I'll, I'll yeah. do my best here. Sure. To give kind of a, just a taste for it. Yeah. Um, I, I, Andrew Bailey and I, we have a publication called How to Build a Thought, Mm -hmm. and we have a version of accounting argument. It's different in certain respects from the ones I give in the book, um, but it's very technical, uh, symbolized. I think it's like more than 30 steps. um, And it's been reviewed by different logicians to sort of check it and get all the the pieces right. It's a very technical argument. Mm -hmm. Um, But the seed idea is an idea that came to me when I was just one morning having some breakfast. And I just had this picture in my mind of these material landscapes, mountains, and then overlaying the material landscapes was a kind of conceptual landscape or concept, a structure of concepts. Hmm. And then I began to wonder about the ways in which the conceptual structures can vary through logical relations. Uh, So for example, you could have the, the, um, thought that snow is white. Then you can have a thought that, uh, White is snow. Okay, two different thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then you can have like this or relation and you can like combine those thoughts. You can have this more complex thought of snow is white or uh, white is snow. And it's like now that more complex thought also has structure with the or relation in there. And this is a different sort of structure than the structure of the material forms, like the mountains, let's say the spatial structures, of the mountains. And so I begin to wonder, like, is there a way to show that there are more conceptual types of arrangements than spatial types of arrangements Um, that would be like logically conceivable and immediately i understood that there's going to be an infinite on both sides um, because there's infinitely many different ways to reconfigure space spatial things and there's infinitely many ways to reconfigure conceptual things you just one way to think about this is for any kind of spatial thing there could be a conceptual thing about the spatial thing yeah a conceptual thing that represents that spatial thing. It has a sort of conceptual parts. Um, And so you have at least as many conceptual things as spatial things. And so let's say both are infinite, but I also understood from Cantor. Cantor helped us to understand infinities and he's got this famous diagonal argument for why some infinities are bigger than other infinities. I'm not going to work work through the argument here, but but the idea is that you, you can show that Um, there are some lists where for every member of the list, you can find a member on another list, um, but you can't go the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like if if you take the list of all the decimal numbers and then you list of all the whole numbers, for every whole number, you can find uh, a a decimal number over here, but you can't also find for every decimal number, a different whole number. You can have to do repeats. And there's a technical way of, of showing this. But what this shows is that these lists can't be like the same and cardinality or the same like size we could say yeah and so i wondered well could there be a similar argument that the list of all the spatial configurations is a different uh different size than the list of all the um, conceptual configurations yeah generated by these logical links it's like the spatial considerations are generated by like spatial links and then the the um the conceptual configurations can be generated By logical links, you can add or to more and more thoughts, get more and more complex thoughts. Now, let me just be clear. I wasn't assuming at the start of the argument that conceptual links are different from spatial links Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or that or isn't just a fancy function of brain particles. Uh, I wasn't assuming that. In fact, my whole point was, was to see if this kind of reconfiguration argument or counting argument could give us a reason to think. That they're different and so what i do and i and i draw this out in the book better than i i do in any of my publications i've got three publications on this um i actually have a new argument in the book that draws out something here but what i what i try to do is show how you can see through introspection um these different ways of reconfiguring concepts without Mm -hmm. assuming the nature of the concepts so 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 i want to just point this out here because for example I think people would already agree that you can see with introspection that feeling happy is different than feeling sad or that a thought that two plus two equals four is different than a thought that two plus two equals six. You can see that by introspection without first checking your brain and seeing which molecules those things are, even if you're an identity theorist, right? So even if you're an identity theorist and you think that those thoughts are identical to certain brain patterns, um, you can still distinguish those thoughts from each other even while you're holding on to your identity theory, if that makes yeah. sense, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not assuming identity theory is not true. And so then, what I do is is I just um, use Cantor's theorem uh, together with the sort of principle of of recombination of of um, conceptual things to lead to this conclusion that if you know, if all the steps are right, that there are more ways of reconfiguring mental space, let's say, or conceptual space yeah. than um, than physical space or material space. And, and 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 so I have the shapes argument but then I extend the reasoning to brain states and to other states and I, and I show the same pattern and that actually the result of the whole thing is what I call the mindful thoughts theorem which is that the the basis of mentality or thoughts can't just be determined by different mindless configurations that you actually need a mind you need you need some kind of mind that's able to generate these thoughts. Yeah you can't just get patterns of mindless bits that determine each thought. There's too many types of thoughts. This is my intuitive sketch. I, I can't give you all the pieces intuitively. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not that skilled, but <laughs> that's on an intuitive level. What, what the sort of project is there.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad to broach it because um, someone will be inspired by this. You know, someone will go look that up and they'll, yeah. and, this could be, you know, they'll take your thing even further, whatever. Yeah. They'll try to argue against it or whatever. So I'm, I'm really glad to just be able to broach. So, so many things are so hard to talk about on a podcast because you just need to to see it written yeah. out. And there's so, more
0: to explore. And I'm glad that you bring that up because I know for myself, people will say things on their podcast and then they'll sow a seed and I'll kind of work on that. So yeah. there's more here. I, I think of this as kind of like a, a tree that can sprout more and more branches to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, man, so good. Uh, okay. I want to, I want to, I want to respect your time here. I've got just uh, a couple more. So you, you talk about the mind to body and then the body to mind uh, and it's like the the interaction problem. Yeah. Man, you, you're, you seem so confident in this and it freaks me out. Um, help me out. Like wh- can we solve this or, or do we just make it more reasonable to, to, to think that we, that we are a thinking substance that like, what, yeah. Help, help me think through the interaction problem.
0: Yeah. So I think maybe what I'm confident about is first that there is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then second um, that certain solutions won't work. Yeah. Um, and then third, what I try to do is offer sort of like a framework for possibility. Yeah. And, and I want to suggest that we can now fill in that framework in different ways, but that it's the framework for possibility. So the
1: frameworks, we can, I'm, I'm so excited about that because I, I need a, a way forward. And I think that the, the framework can be helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think the problems kind of deepened in my mind. I, I think I didn't really appreciate the problem um, when I was taking courses in, in graduate school and people would sort of ask like, how can mind produce Changes to material states, like how is that even possible? And, yeah, and it would just ask that question like with force. It's like, well, I have no intuition that there's a problem there. I mean, anything can cause anything. I don't see what you're seeing. Like, why that's a problem? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I did I did get the grip of the hard problem of consciousness. No, not immediately, but as I zoomed in on kind of what these philosophers were saying, what Chalmers was saying. And increasingly, even in in the writing of the book, just looking at the specific kinds of states of consciousness and then thinking about how just moving particles around could produce those states all on their own, could explain those states. um, I did find myself thinking, yeah, you know, I think it's not just that I don't see how this is possible. I I think I actually see that there are some impossibilities here, like there are some constraints on what can happen. And we talked about this. You know, I always like to use example, like numbers can't produce people because most people can have a pretty firm grip on that impossibility. Yeah. And so I'm not saying everything sort of is easy to see as everything else. Um, But I think that there's some constraints you can sort of see. And so then I'm thinking about different theories about the nature of mental states and different theories about the nature of material states. And it's looking to me that in certain theories, they just don't seem like they can interact. And, and what helped me here is that I started to see that there is a connection between mind-body problem and that hard problem of consciousness. Because if you think that the brain functions in a certain way to produce thoughts and feelings and emotions and conscious intentions, then in a way, you already think that there's a solution to that hard problem mm. if the brain is fundamentally mindless molecules. yeah, There has to be some kind of solution there. And, and I've had this idea that Well, what do I want to say here? Before I get to the idea, let me, let me kind of draw out the problem just a little bit. So, so I think there's maybe a kind of, um, nature problem that certain, it's not just that they're different. It's that certain kinds of things don't seem to be able to produce certain other kinds of things. Like numbers can't produce leaves. Um, and so, you know, it, it that just seems true. And, and, and a mental character in my mind can't just produce rocks rolling out of my mind. It just that doesn't work. There's just like incongruence there. Yeah. And so then the question is, well, then how does mind and matter how, how do they relate? Um, and some people think, well, maybe you're assuming dualism, right? You're assuming mind is not material. But that's not really what I'm, I'm trying to think about here. I'm just trying to think about, okay. What are thoughts from my own first-person introspective analysis? They have a structure. They have aboutness. How can this thing that I witness directly in my own mind, this isn't a spooky woo-woo posit. This is something that I witnessed directly in my own mind. And there's an intention to, let's say, count to five with my fingers. One, two, three. Oh, look, at matter is moving, right? Matter. These are shapes changing. One, two, three. <laughs> yeah. I have intention in my mind. I'm focusing on the intention. I'm witnessing its reality. Okay, I'm not positing some immaterial thing here. I'm not positing anything. I'm wit- directly consciously witnessing its reality and then witnessing this result. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not sure, like, how is that really possible right away? Um, in the book, I distinguish between two puzzles. One is a kind of specific linking question, which is, like, how, how do specific thoughts link to specific effects, especially if mindless matter is pulling the strings and everything? Yeah. How how does the mind add its own causal power to make it or or does it, you know, is it just like, it's just almost like a coincidence that mindless matter just happens to produce the effects that like, I'm seeing that I'm intending to produce. It's like, I have this specific intention that has a specific structure, content that I count to five. And then there's this event in material reality that has that same structure counting to five. And there's a specific link. And it's like, it's like magic, right? How does that work? Um, Yeah. I think science, empirical science can help us and has helped us a lot to fill in those details, but there's still this kind of deeper question about like what kind of reality would make it probable that there would be these kinds of matches, these kinds of links. That's a specific linking question. Then there's this, uh, I call it the general linking question, which is even more fundamental, which is about the nature of the mental and the nature of the material effect. And it's about how can there be this, this, transition from this mental state to this um, material effect. And I'm telling you, like, I came into the grip of that problem. Like I, I no longer think that that's just, you know, like, well, anything can cause anything. I really came to feel like, no, you know what? There can't be a direct causation there. It's actually just not possible. Hmm. Just not possible for there to be a direct causation in either direction. Just the natures are wrong. And so so then I mean, this led me to think hard and, and even pray. <laughs> I was like, God help, mm-hmm. I want to understand. And so uh, through reflection, I came up with a framework of possibility. Mm-hmm. So I just say, here's an idea that doesn't seem impossible to me, and it seems like it would it would at least allow this mind matter to go to possibly go together. And the framework of possibilities to introduce this notion of a substance. And I'm kind of thinking of this in an Aristotelian way, but I try to be minimal in my characterization of it. But it's basically something that can have some form or some attributes. Okay. It's not itself an attribute, it's not itself just an abstract state, but it's something that can have be a bearer of attributes. And then I make the argument that this is the kind of thing that could have a basic capacities. Basic capacities would be powers to do certain things. Um, Mm -hmm. not in virtue of doing other things. So some things you do in virtue of doing other things, but a basic capacity you just do in a basic way. Okay. And I make the argument that some capacities have to be basic because otherwise you have an infinite regress problem where anything that anything does, it does in virtue of doing something else first, but does that in virtue of doing something else first. And it's not first in time. It's like at this moment, like you do this in virtue of doing this and out to infinity that's doing too much. So so (laughs) to avoid that problem, um, I say there's, I float the the possibility here that there's some basic um, powers, basic actions, right? Yeah. So then that opens up the door because then the question is, what are these basic actions? And I I make the argument um, through other parts of the book that among the basic actions are the actions to make or to form in one's mind, thoughts. Hmm. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that there can't be prior conditions or constraints. It's not that you can just like think anything at any time. I think there are prior conditions and constraints, okay. but it, but it's what it is because like, maybe you have to have a certain set of experiences to have a certain set of thoughts. Yeah. Okay. You
1: never seen an elephant, then you can't make a pink one.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But once you've had the, once you've met the right conditions, then um, it opens up the possibility of forming a thought without First, having to do an infinite number of other things, right? Or any other things, you just form it, form the thought. Um, and so then I have seven drawers of a theory. and I'm not going to go through all of them here, but I, I go carefully and systematically through uh, each drawer to show how you can have thoughts, you can have, you can cause motions, you can cause visual experiences of space, you can cause links between thoughts and visual experiences, you can mm-hmm. cause you can cause programs over time. And actually I think evolution through natural selection contributes to the development of programs um, and interacting with your environment. And Mm -hmm. I draw on some evolutionary biologists in this respect, and it fits very well with my own theory of consciousness. So that actually the conscious being is able to generate in a way it's basic actions are out of a substance that can produce states. And then through um, the generation of states, it can now produce more elaborate, complex programs that link some states with other states.
1: Yeah, like throwing a baseball or something like that. Like that's, yeah.
0: that's yeah. a complex or building, you know, like building a neighborhood, you have to build each house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to build, a house, you build, you know, and, and so I'm trying to analyze this at the most fundamental level, the ba- basic actions, and then I leave open, you know, like, like what all is involved? I mean, is it sure. just one substance? Well, maybe many substances cooperate. Maybe there's many, many different stuff. Maybe there's a foundational substance, you know, and we can open up that door too. But but the idea here is that there's gotta be some basic capacities. And so it's not, it's not that merely by having a feeling, that structure of that feeling thereby makes an arm move or merely by changing the shape in some particles, that that makes those particles have happiness hmm. um, that that causation is not direct. What's going on is that there's a substance, certain kind of being that when that being is present, there can now be the production from that being the different States and it can hmm. link the States together. And that this, this is a skeleton that can then be filled in, but it allows for the possibility of mind body interaction in terms of a unifying substance. And it, it also has a very practical implication because it implies that in order for a brain to be connected to consciousness, there has to already be a certain kind of substance. Um, I call it a conscious substance, conscious yeah. substance is the kind of substance that can do this sort of thing. And so there has to be that kind of kind of substance. Without the substance, the brain would never on its own become conscious. I think this, this actually poses an in principle problem for building conscious beings just out of chips. Um, I think, I think if, if you assembled a robot that became conscious, it would be because it taps into some yes. super law yeah. that's connected to the production of a conscious being or the, uh, whether the production of a conscious being or the um, translation to use a a more neutral term of a conscious being into a certain place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's happening there is that the conscious being is required for there to be interaction at all yeah. with material structure.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I really, I really like that, oh, man. I really like that. Um, well, I'm not so confident like about each of those parts, yeah. you know, but I am yeah. pretty confident that there is a problem here and solving it's not, has not been easy for me. Um, yeah. But I do offer a theory that I think has helped me at least.
1: Yeah. And I like that. I wonder, I wonder about, um, so there's a power. Uh, shoot. You, you said you could leave it open to, to whether there's, you know, one substance or several yeah um so the conscious subject or the conscious substance is there any reason to think that it it is it is one because i think like intuitively we're like no i am me i'm not 10 substances or something i don't think it would matter because then you would have like you could just say substance pluralism instead of substance dualism or something but any any intuitions that you have or whether you think that we we just are that one that has all the capacities or whether each capacity has its own substance or
0: something So I do have this whole section on oneness and and I take an account of of my oneness. And so, you know, I do think I'm one being, Um, but there could be other beings. Well, okay. I mean, look, so you're a different being. I'm a being, you're a being, okay? And we're interacting. And the interaction I'm having with you is affecting me, including like my brain. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the development of my brain is not solely just because of me.
1: Oh, that's good, dude. There's there's yeah. two substances inner uh, affecting your brain. At least two substances. Yeah. If we yeah. are sub yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One directly and one maybe more indirectly, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. And and it could be that in the history of my total life, um, you know, I'm not the only substance that developed my brain. Sure. And and, and even here, when I say my I developed my brain, it's a little bit on, on purpose because there is this view that you know, the brain is what develops the consciousness and the sense of self. Mm-hmm. I'm quite convinced that that's, I, I just have the opposite view of that, that that's actually the conscious being yeah. that develops its form. I'm um, with you there. Yeah, totally.
1: totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you prayed about this and so maybe the, you know, God's substance also well, carried you along and helped you as well. Healthy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, right. 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 So, so God could be at work at the foundational level yeah. and, um, and, and I don't want to suggest that my answer here came out of prayer. I prayed and then I worked this through, but I didn't have the feeling that God sure. gave me sure. this theory. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: otherwise, yeah. Which isn't inherited. to say
0: that there aren't other times because there actually are some pieces of that um, that counting argument where it did feel like God was was giving me information. You know, and and I'm not 100% certain of that, but it had that feeling. So yeah, I don't rule that out.
1: That's awesome. That. Um, all right. So I just want to finish with two questions, man, just to sum this all up. So
0: this is great. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you.
1: What, what what are we? And then what must reality be like in order for us to be what we are? Okay. I want to address
0: those questions. Those those are the big questions. And then I know we're, we're taking good time on this. I think it'll be helpful just to say a little bit more about the science. science. So I want to come back to that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the, my basic theory about who we are is, um, you know, one level of answering that is that we are fundamentally the kind of being that we witness introspectively when we witness that most familiar self. And, and you almost have to get into a meditative state, I think, to hmm. sort of realize that, okay, you're not your thoughts, you're not your feelings, you're not your emotions. There's something aware of your thoughts and feelings or something aware of your emotions. What is that? And then you turn the awareness in on it. And then what is that? Well, I, I say that's real. It is actually who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such a profound reality that it's actually connected to the second question, which is how did you, how could you come to be? What kind of stuff could make you? Yeah. And, This part just blows my mind and I'm still trying to work through um, how to understand this more precisely in the book. I I lay out this tight constraint of where the answer is. And in that little place (laughs) is some room there that I'm, I'm trying to understand more, but, but there is that deep construction problem of how do you produce a self? It's so deep. I mean, just, thinking about it, like, how do you come to be? And the theory that I ended up developing is a source substance theory that you are in a significant way constructed out of the fundamental self, the original, Mm -hmm. the original reality, the most basic reality. And by the way, going back to that very first puzzle, like, well, how can there be consciousness? Consciousness is a state. A state is not a substance. Yeah. So I think that the explanation of consciousness is this fundamental self. Hmm. This fundamental self has these powers, these basic powers to produce thoughts and feelings. It's wild to me to, to think about how, how it has those powers. But at some level, there's just this basicality, this sort of maybe there's a kind of, I've wondered sort of connecting with some of my other work, if you sort of shave off all, sort of arbitrary complexities and limits and boundaries, like what you're left is with um, an unrestricted, unconstrained, sort of like inexhaustibly powerful fundamental reality. And if that fundamental reality is a self, then it can be the thing out of which all other persons are made. And, And I use that term are made because kind of my working model here is that I'm not just created like ex nihilo, like, like fresh material. Like I'm literally made out of, out of the original self. Like when I look within, I see myself, I'm seeing all the way into the depths of reality. I'm Hmm. seeing the the basic point of reality that is the same point that's in you. So like there's this deep way in which on this model, we're all united by this deep self, the fundamental self unites us. We're all one in that sense. Um, like so, like if you get mad at me, you're actually literally mad. And and you start putting negative energy toward me, and I start to feel that you're at your energy that's negative toward me, insofar as it touches the center point of me, it has to touch the center point of you because the center point of you is the center point of me. Hmm. I'm not saying you are me. Yeah. I'm saying you, your center point, the deepest point of view it's the deepest point I mean, i i lose my language to even talk about this because i do think yeah. there's distinction between persons but um th- this is how i i end up addressing that deep construction problem yeah that there's this original fundamental reality and it is able to make other things and you know maybe in our traditions we have metaphors for this that are always like incomplete sort of like training wheels um they don't really get to the deeper that's going on there but i think we can continue to learn more and more about the fundamental nature of reality so where i'm at is that who i am is a first person reality fundamentally i witness myself within and then my origin is deeply connected to your origin and it's deeply connected even to what i am the stuff of my existence
1: yeah
0: yeah so that that's where i'm at but you know like i say these are deep waters and i'm still sorting my own thoughts about how to understand sort of the unity of that fundamental self and then the diversity of the persons and their experiences. Yeah.
1: So man, when I, when I was, uh, I was reading this at the gym on the elliptical today and then I went and I was, I was doing bicep curls. I remember where this was at and I looked around and I saw all these people around me and I thought like, and I think I, I was actually listening to you and golf as well. So I read a little bit then I listened to you and golf and it, golf, uh, philip goff for those who don't know um he's he had this paper on universal consciousness where like there's um it's priority monism so you know the universe is conscious and then we're all made of like parts of that still connected to it but we have our own um our own conscious properties our own um phenomenological properties so that you and i have different minds and then he dropped that and i was like man that's actually really fascinating I wish you'd stick with that but Mm -hmm. when when you kind of brought it home for me, where I was thinking of like, what does it mean to be the image of image of God? And it's like, you know, if God is this fundamental reality and He is conscious and He's made us in His image, yeah. what would that have to be like? What would that be like? And if He like breathed into us, you know, we we have this language in the Bible about that. But if He did, and we are like part of Him, but in a way where we we could still respect the creator creature distinction, right? Like yeah. that's a really important thing. Um, if we can do that, like, how much more valuable are you and me, like? it's not just this language that, Oh, I'm going to say that you're made in my image. It's like, no, you are of the same like thing as me. You're not me. You're not God. Yeah. But you represent me. And then how much, how terrible is that when I, when I don't represent him well, you know? And so it just, it, it it freaked me out. I looked around and I see all these image bearers of God. And I was like, the value and worth in this building right now is insane. And yet we all have these different lives and experiences that have shaped us in different ways. And I can't think the way they can, but, I can, if they speak to me and share their thoughts with me. So it just, it was crazy to have I've had similar
0: experience. experiences and at the gym where I'm like looking at other people and, <laughs> yeah. and thinking about this and thinking like, wow, we're, we're so deeply connected Yeah. Um. by this sort of common substance, you know? And, yeah. and I like how you put that in terms of the, the image bearer, you know, yeah. the sort of icon or, or person or face of the original reality representation of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whew, man, it's deep. It's heavy. Um, Yeah, I know we're at the end. I did want to just say kind of one thing. One thing about the science, um, and and this is this is always like a very tricky and delicate topic because first, it's complex. Um, Second, you know, I'm I'm not a neuroscientist, right? So I'm I'm reading 2020, 2021 um, articles, reading abstracts, reading the peer review data in the article, reading what they're saying, and it looks to me like there's just this flood of New information about how consciousness is affecting brain brain states in measurable ways. Hmm. Um, that there there is work about how you can, in a sense, like fix your brain through certain mindful meditation techniques and yeah. repair your brain. And and this isn't like you know fringe science or no. um, you know like cherry picking. This is like mainstream developments about the power of our consciousness. And I think one of the big questions is how do we analyze what the scientists are finding about the conscious impact on materials? How do we analyze that? And I think that really to make progress on this, we do need to sort of make distinctions, do that sort of analytical surgery. Um, Smart people come to different views on this because it's not easy to see how to analyze this. But I, I wanted to kind of just make this point because there is a kind of narrative or paradigm that says that it's part of what science has discovered, that everything is actually determined by the micro mindless physical processes. Right. And it looks to me that there's a a kind of maybe revolution going on now, but it's hard to know what to make of it. Yeah. My own analysis is that our consciousness is able to affect material systems. I used to use the language of top down. I think it's actually better to use the language of bottom up. Um, When when Carlo Rovelli talks about the quantum field having these informational states that are prior to the spatial projections of matter, material form, um, and that there are these vibrational states, these excitations in the quantum field that then propagate outward into macroscopic um, structures, it's like I'm thinking, okay, well, there is this quantum brain theory. This is recent stuff where they're talking about how we can measure um, consciousness and that this could actually happen through propagation upward through the quantum field hmm. this makes sense of the data now this is an indirect inference so i'm starting with observations of my own mental experiences having effects in the world together with reading the science that kind of opens up this possibility that um that we're actually able we're, we're deep in it, it's not that the molecules formed a brain and then god stuffed the person in there yeah it, Yes. Yeah. You know yeah. or the person just popped out like magically yeah. it's it's yeah. that no, no no we're in a sense when i was born onto the earth my consciousness preceded even the material forms and i began to contribute to the generation according to informational codes yeah that are, let's say in cooperation with with god yeah um the development of my neurological structure so i could interact with this world
1: yeah so so there's some substance to uh, i uh, i don't know if i'm always wary to say who says what but i Brandon Rickerbaugh has toyed with this idea. I think JP Moreland than has toyed with it too. But like the 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 soul informing the body, and it's yeah. it's like what you're saying, like informing, not in like the you know old metaphysic way, but like shaping and giving rise to and organizing. Because you look at the yeah, being caused I mean, exactly yeah. exactly right and building yeah. up. It's something's doing it. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you, I love how you. I, I just just add this here because I, I love how you would say earlier that. We have a kind of access to our own consciousness that's like greater and more familiar than our access yeah. to external material world and i think that there's something here about our own access to our own powers to make changes including to make changes in structures in our own imagination in our yeah. own mind that we're actually more familiar with that than we are of micro states producing all the, the effects right. right so it right. seems like given that the, what's clear is my witnessing of my own mental causation to me that seems clear it seems like then i want to build my worldview on what's clearer right not what's less clear right this it's with what scientists are saying as well so that's another reason why i sort of arrive at this view that yeah it's like your consciousness forms uh the the changes in your body you know and it's two way there's two-way interaction i do believe that yeah 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 i
1: like that i like that I actually like you wanting to reclaim the bottom up because it makes sense of, of what you're saying here. I, Well, we're going to have to change the thought bubbles. We're going to take those thought bubbles and put them underneath this. We're standing on the thought bubble or something. But, but we always have this idea of like, oh, I'm going up there to think. And it's like, yeah. uh, you know, that's like the emergentist view. Like we don't have to be, we don't have to go in for that.
0: Well, this is actually very important in terms of framing because for philosophers, we think of the fundamental things as down. Yeah. So, you know, like if you want to talk about God. grounding, right? Yeah, you're
1: grounded in. Yeah. yeah.
0: Don't never point up to God. Yeah, Because if you're a philosopher, just point down because yeah. philosophers think the fundamental things are down, yeah. right? So there's this weirdness with the top down because it mixes things in our minds. It confuses us. It's like, we think, well, top down causation, novel powers that go down. But right. wait a minute, those powers are supposed to be able to do something that's not predicted by the microphysical, which means that in a way they're fundamental actors. Yeah, I mean, this is actually what pa- Papa now, he, he has this article called the rise of physicalism he makes this beautiful argument from the sort of mental powers uh, to this idea that if those mental powers are real and not reducible to the mindless, that they would actually make a difference to the microphysical. Now, his argument go, kind of goes the other way. He says, well, you know, the microphysical explains everything. So there yeah. aren't these mental powers. But I flip it and say, no, if there are these mental powers, what that means is that they it, they do make a difference to the physical in a sort of fundamental way, which means if the fundamental is down, then, you know, maybe it's better to kind of reconfigure this and, and totally. sort of think of, you know, because the reason why people use the word top is they're thinking of the whole, the mirror whole is being the big. And so the yeah. top is like from the big down to the small. But if you can sort of think about it, about it, actually, you know, like you, whatever you are, are fundamental. And so you act sort of bottom up. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that's just helpful. That's that's. Well, I love of- it. I've yeah. I've been
1: thinking about this since I've been uh, since I had uh, Dr. Shaffer and and talking yeah. about priority monism, and I'm like, what? Why would? It, why does it have to be up here? Why can't it? Why isn't priority monism down here? Like, uh-huh. just the the spatial stuff yeah. helps me think through yeah. that. Yeah. How
0: we think about yeah. it. Yeah, that's
1: good, man. This has been huge. Um, so we we covered like barely any of the book there's so much that you go over there's so many things where i'm like there's an argument there's an argument there's an... It's so good so again uh for the listeners uh the book's not out yet but m- maybe when you're watching this it is and if it is i'll put the link in the description but it's who are you really a philosopher's inquiry into the nature and origin of persons and josh man thanks for for forwarding it over like i love it i'm gonna have to read it over several more times but it's already helped me think through this stuff and i, I want to be a philosopher of mine so this is this is awesome man i'm, I'm really appreciative of your work
0: here. Yeah. I appreciate this time with you. And I feel like we really drew out a lot in this conversation. So I'm very grateful for that. I mean, we, we drew out some stuff that's not exactly in the book. Um, some of the things that we that's talked true. about here, yeah. um, but you're right. I mean, there's more, the, the book is, I try to write in that, that sort of wide appeal style, yeah. sort of like in the how reason can lead to God. But I was telling my wife, Rachel, I was like, you know, this, this book is actually really intense. It's, yeah. it's maybe about Almost twice as intense as how reason can lead to God and about almost twice as long. Um, yeah. But it, it kind of needs to be intense given the, the, the nature of the inquiry that we're talking about. So. Well, I was,
1: I was actually laughing when I was reading it because um, it reminded me so much of Swinburne's Are We Bodies or Souls? Where at the beginning he's like, I'm writing to a general audience and it's small. So I'm like, sick, this is going to be great. And I was a theology student at the time. And it was, it was like, this is not, no, we're talking about informative designators and stuff. But it was such a way that I could still get in. It wasn't so jargon-laden that I couldn't get in. And yours is like that where, like, yeah I'm, I've been studying this stuff, so it's helpful that I, I have a lot of those things. But if you stick with it, you will learn. Like, you can do it, and especially with the tools that you've given. So it's, it's really good because it's not popular
0: level, even though yeah. someone who's not an expert can read it. That's right. You can work through it, you know, and, and there's always a difference between the sort of the highlights. You yeah. know, I try to sort of write in that layered way. You can kind of skim and skip to get the highlights. Yeah. And then the depth, because I did want to write this so that specialists um, could get something new. I mean, there were some things I, I thought, oh, this is this could help, you know, and I have people in my mind like this could help sort that out. You know, So good. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So good. Uh, Josh, So people want to listen to more of you, man. Um, can you plug your your YouTube channel for them? worldview design um yeah. and i'm looking forward to coming back to that at some point to produce more content but i have yeah. some videos there yeah. and joshua l rasmussen.com uh you can have the links there here but yeah. there you can get a lot of free resources to help you go deeper
1: yeah awesome and um is that uh how to build a thought do you have that at the website or where, where can someone find that and you one?
0: should be able to find that yeah on my website how cool to
1: build that. Yeah. awesome 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 All right, folks, well, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.